Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy Legislation Podcast. This is Joy Mason and Triago, Managing Director of the Association for Data and Cyber Governance. We are the only professional association that combines all aspects of data and cyber governance for the governance, risk, and compliance professional. You can find us online at adcg.org. It gives us great pleasure to host this event led by two outstanding moderators, Jerry Buckley and Jody Westby. Jerry is a founder of Buckley LLP, a national financial services law firm based in Washington, D.C. Prior to entering private practice, he served as minority staff director of the U.S. Senate Banking Committee. Jody is CEO of Global Cyber Risk LLC and chairs the American Bar Association's Privacy and Computer Crime Committee. We have some really great guests lined up today and in the future, so please be sure to rate us and subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. This is Jody Westby, and I'm here today with my co-host, Jerry Buckley of Buckley LLP. We're so pleased that we have Scott Giordano with us today. Scott is an attorney with more than 20 years of legal, technology, and risk management consulting experience, and he is currently Senior Counsel, Privacy and Compliance at Spirian, a well-known data classification and privacy software company. Scott serves as Spirian's subject matter expert on multinational data protection and its intersection with technology, export compliance, internal investigations, information governance, and risk management. During his career, Scott has held senior positions at several large legal technology firms. He's established global privacy programs, and he's listed as a co-inventor on intelligent searching of electronically stored information. So Scott, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Sperian helps so many companies find out what data they have to classify it and to respond to personal data breaches. So you get a lot of exposure to the business community and have insight into the struggles there in complying with the wide range of privacy compliance requirements. We're focusing in these podcasts that we're doing on whether national privacy legislation is finally possible. So let's start with asking about your perception on how the business community feels about getting a national privacy law. How do you read the current thinking and what issues do you perceive as most important to them? Well, Jody, I think that the uh, businesses in general would love a national privacy law uh, insofar as it provides consistency and predictability, and they have a very good idea of what's going to be asked of them from a compliance perspective. And I'm certainly... I think many in the privacy community would, would also be very happy to have a, a national privacy law. So I think that's the current wish list. Um, I don't see us getting anything like that anytime soon. I hate to be the, the bearer of bad news, but this is where we are right now. Well, I hope you're wrong about that. But let me All right. to Jerry and bring you into this, Jerry. Thank you. And thank you again, Scott, for being with us. We really uh, value your contribution to our uh, our quest for the answer to the question, even if you're not giving the answer we'd like to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being with us today. Certainly, we started, absolutely. started our podcast series with an interview with Dan Soloff, who spoke a bit about the Court of Justice of the European Union's decision, known as Schrems II, that invalidated the U.S. Privacy Shield program, 
But that was last October, just a few months after the court's ruling. Now the dust has had a chance to settle uh, on a general level. And there's been a little bit more in the way of guidance put out. So maybe you could give us a summary of the main points of the court's decision and where we are now. Sure, happy to. Two main points of the court decision. One is that the privacy shield framework or program, whatever you want to call it, it's a data transfer mechanism. And it was a mechanism that was used to move data out of the EU to the US. That program has been invalidated. And we can talk certainly about all the the many reasons why, but the net net of it is that entire program has been invalidated, can no longer be used. And in fact, those that were using the program found that they had to make changes immediately. The ruling was effective immediately. There was no grace period given. The second point was that standard contract clauses, which are another mechanism for getting data out of the EU um, to anywhere outside of the EU, those were held prima facie to be acceptable to move data out of the EU to the US if and only if there were supplementary measures applied to that data transfer. And we say supplementary measures, meaning some kind of data protection measures like encryption or other uh, controls of that nature. So that was that, that's the ruling in a nutshell. Well, that's a, a good summary. And uh, US businesses have been whipsawed by with EU compliance, as U.S. diplomatic programs such as Safe Harbor and Privacy Shield have been implemented and then invalidated, as you've noted. We have such a broad view of business compliance. Can you share what are the ramifications of these decisions for U.S. companies? Well, for U.S. companies, you think about all of the many thousands and thousands and thousands of U.S. companies that are, are importing data from the EU to the U.S. right now. They've all, in principle, had to stop, take a look at those transactions and determine if the supplementary measures that they should be putting in place will be enough to somehow get around the abilities of the U.S. intelligence community and law enforcement community in a way that meets the terms of the TREMS decision. So that's something that should be done. I suspect it's created a lot of confusion and perhaps even chaos. And uh, it's it's be very interesting to see ultimately where this winds up. It's been a mess for U.S. companies in general, and I don't see any resolution anytime soon. Well, they sort of singled out U.S. companies, didn't they? You know, they were citing some concerns in the U.S. I mean, I think that the Shrimps decision, if it applies to anyone or is targeted at anyone, it's at U.S. companies, isn't it? That's correct. And really, even if they didn't come out and say U.S. companies per se, it's very clear from the entire tenor of the ruling that this is really directed at the U.S. and at the U.S. government. That's the bottom line here, is that this idea that you have to look at your intelligence agencies, whatever they may be, that could be plugged into the internet and make sure that you're finding a way around them, that that's marked for the U.S. and not really for anyone else in particular. So it's going to be a heavy burden for us to get around, but we're going to have to find a way to get around it. So what did they specifically single out in the U.S. that concerned them? Well, here's where this all came from. Um, I'm sure many of your, your listeners remember the Edward Snowden revelations that happened in 2013. In case you don't, um, that, uh, that gentleman was someone that worked at the NSA. He was a contractor. He revealed all kinds of programs that were being done by the NSA that were not publicly, publicly, I guess, known at that time. And they were things that were pretty disturbing. There was a program called Upstream, which was essentially the NSA plugged into the internet upstream of all of our receipt of internet information. So imagine that there is a 
cable or series of cables that cross the Atlantic, they come to the U.S., the, the NSA is plugged into that under a program called Executive Order 12333. That's been around since the Reagan administration, and it enables the NSA to sift through all of that for what's called signals intelligence, basically information about foreign adversaries. So that program was singled out because there's really no redress against it. Uh, U.S. citizens can't go to court to stop those kind of searches, and certainly non-U.S. persons cannot do it either. Second one was the FISA Section 702, which happened, um, it was developed uh, some years after the 9-11 attacks, and essentially it allows spying on non-U.S. persons. And there aren't much in the way of controls. There is a FISA court, but the FISA court just approves programs. It doesn't approve individual targets. So essentially, law enforcement has wide latitude to sift through information and more or less ask for information from the big internet providers like AT&T and, and, and Facebook, Microsoft, everyone, quite literally, and then have that information and be able to sift through it. So that created quite a bit of consternation on the part of the, of the CJEU, and that's why we're here now. Yeah. And just for our listeners, FISA means Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And there's a provision, Section 702, that allows for secret orders for obtaining communications traffic, as Scott said. So the European Union Data Protection Board, known as EDPB, in November 2020, came out with recommendations, a document called Recommendations on the Supplementary Measures that Could Be Used to Comply with SHRMS 2. And so ensure compliance with EU level of protection of personal data, which would basically be be in compliance with SHRMS 2. Now, the EDPB has done some pretty good work previously, but did this publication help clarify how companies can comply with this? Do we now know what supplementary measures means? Um, The short answer is no. And in fact, uh, this document is an exception from the other ones that the the board has put together. It's not been helpful. In fact, I think it's exacerbated the problem. So there's two sections or two parts to this this document. One runs through the the test or the assessment that you have to do whenever you're going to be transferring data out of the EU in, in, in any context. So you have to essentially determine where it's going, what mechanism you're using, the target country, what kind of rule of law they have there, all those things. And essentially that's an assessment. And then you have to get an idea of, okay, what kind of risks are there and what kind of controls are we going to put in place to mitigate those? So it it sounds like something that we should all be doing and quite frankly should have done in advance. But what they do then is they say, well, you have to add supplementary measures. They don't really give you supplementary measures. They give you these supplementary scenarios. And I hate to say it, but they border on the the chimerical. So I'll, I'll give you one example. If you're going to be backing up data outside the EU, then you have to use, quote unquote, strong encryption, whatever that is. The encryption algorithm has to conform to the state of the art. And I love this, has to be robust against cryptanalysis performed by public authorities in the recipient country. So if you think about that, if you're going to store data as backup data, it's not even day-to-day data, it's backup data in the, in the U.S., from the EU, then somehow you're going to have to have an idea of what kind of cryptoanalytical capability our intelligence agencies have. I mean, it's, it's, it's an impossible standard to meet. So that, right. that's one scenario. Another scenario that's equally chimerical is this idea that if you're transferring using synonymized data or tokenized data, then you have to effectively employ this pseudonymization technology, which really outside of credit card processing is not terribly common to begin with. You have to hold the information that can re-identify 
data subjects in the EU under encryption itself, under some kind of protection. And then you have to, and again, this is just amazing, you have to analyze the data you want to send in light of any information that the public authorities, meaning the intelligence community and law enforcement, has in the target country. Again, it's another impossible to meet standard. And so this is what this document's all about. And I really, I wish that the board had not published it. It did not, it did not help us at all here. No, it doesn't sound like it because even if you're a large company, you don't know what the NSA is doing and what it's collecting and how to guard against it. So you can't, you know, it's an impossible standard. That's a lot less clarity than we hope for. So the big issues seem to be the lack of insight into what surveillance activities are governments conducting and the lack of redress for people who are seeking redress. Is that right? Those are exactly. The things. Exactly. Hit the nail on the head. You know, it's a shame that at a time when there are attacks from China and Russia and uh, China is moving ahead trying to establish its own internet dominance, that the democracies are not able to get together and figure this out. And it does have the feel to me of the lawyers at the European court really coming up with things that they think are reasonable, but without consultation with even their their own governments and their own intelligence agencies. This strikes me as something that has to move to a higher level at the head of state to head of state level in order to resolve, because it doesn't seem that it's going to be resolved in the legal process. I'm not saying you have to comment on that, Scott, but it does strike me that we are going to have to move to another level. I agree. Uh, I'm happy to comment on it. I mean, this is, this is really the art of diplomacy, is being able to put together some kind of an agreement that we can, we can use to, uh, to restore these data transfers. And you correctly pointed out that uh, countries like China, that not even democracies, this is what's remarkable when you read the Schrems decision, they talk about the rule of law and democracies, and clearly those two things don't occur in China. And I guess the court, for whatever reason, decided just to ignore all of that when they made this. Because if you, if you read this at face value, you would have to stop every data transfer to China from the EU in its tracks. That's it. There's no way around it, full stop. So you're absolutely right. This is something that's going to have to be resolved diplomatically. But I, again, don't see anything on the horizon. That is the problem uh, with COVID and economic crises sucking up all the air in the room. Meanwhile, in the background, there is this very serious national economic and security issue that is not getting the attention that it should. And, and it's, it's one of the reasons why we're, not that we're going to bring the spotlight to it, but one of the reasons why Jody and I feel that it's necessary to have these podcasts. And, and so bringing us back to, to Washington, D.C., we have U.S. companies that are clearly seeking certainty in their business operations, as you mentioned at the beginning of our discussion. Do you see the, this problem, the Schrems II problem and the related East European court rulings as driving uh, national privacy legislation? I mean, perhaps national privacy law could help address some of these issues and give diplomats a stronger starting point discussing with the EU. We have this patchwork of state laws emerging here in the United States, and yet without a national law, that has some comparability to the GDPR, it seems very difficult to get a seat at the diplomatic table. I agree with your conclusion. Um, I I don't know how we would have a national privacy law 
that would somehow give the kind of judicial redress against those programs we've talked about earlier in any manner, much less to a degree that would be acceptable with the European Union. I just don't see it. Uh, the intelligence community is enormously powerful, and I, I can't see their accepting that kind of a change. Uh, in fact, uh, in, in doing all the research for a paper on this that I'm writing right now, um, I read a, a, an account of the whole Snowden issue. Um, going back some years, uh, it's called Dark Mirror. It's a very, very good chronology of the entire revelations, everything that happened after that. It was published a couple of years ago, and it does a very good job of showing just how enormously powerful the U.S. intelligence community is. And they're not going to dial back that power. Um, they, have, they have ears on all over the whole world. And so I don't see how we square the circle. <laughs> That's a discouraging conclusion, Scott. There is the fact, though, that both since the digital economy is going to be the economy, there are national security implications in strangling it. And that will have to be part of the equation, I would guess. But your insights into the difficulty of resolving this issue are, are I can't gainsay you at all. So, Jody? Well, it's really, really interesting. I mean, I'm wondering, if nothing else, if in national privacy legislation, there was some mechanism for someone to come forward to seek redress for someone who feels they've been wronged, their privacy's been harmed by the government, if there's some mechanism set up in the law for people to do that, that might help, wouldn't it? I mean, right now there's nothing, but if there was at least some mechanism, that would address one of the big things is that people don't really have any avenue here in the U.S. And if we could set up something in a national privacy legislation, wouldn't that help? Do you think that would make a difference, Scott? Well, potentially, but think about the Freedom of Information Act. I mean, that was the whole idea of that. And this comes out of, the, of all the bad stuff that, went, that happened in the 70s and the late 60s that the government wasn't supposed to be keeping secret files on people. Okay. And so as a consequence, we've got FOIA. That should have been the mechanism to be able to find out exactly what's going on here. But because there's a national security exemption, it doesn't work. So unless <laughs> we're, we're willing to make a, that change, and then offer that kind of ability to not, not just U.S. folks, but non-U.S. folks. I don't see how, how else we, we get around this. We can have a national privacy law that essentially is a carbon copy of the California law we have right now, the California Privacy Rights Act. And that would be great. I'd be very happy to see things of that nature. Problem is that's not going to change the dynamic enough that it's going to satisfy SHRMS too. I, I, again, it's a very, very high bar. I don't see a way around it. Well, you know, then right now, right now, when we have all of this extremism going on, it would be a struggle, I think, to get the intelligence community, national security community, to budge on any of this. I'm inclined to agree. Yeah. I might add, though, just as a, that is not an argument against having national privacy legislation, it's an argument that it will not be enough to resolve the issues with the European Union. However, it would be a very great boon in the United States to have something that, is, that has universal applicability and provides for cross-border within the United States uh, uniformity. Whether that's achievable is not 
something we are sure of at this point either, as we've had our discussions on uh, on the preemption issue. But that is something we can strive for. Having a national privacy law is, I think you would grant, Scott, not a detriment to getting to the, it's just not sufficient to get to a resolution of the Schrems 2 issues. No, I, from, a, from a Schrems 2 standpoint, no, it's not a detriment at all. It's really necessary, not sufficient, and it, it's potentially a good step. But I want to caution everyone here that the last time the federal government got involved in, in privacy was the Can Spam Act. Mm-hmm. And they did that using an exclusive mechanism. So there's preemption there. The states can't pursue it. And I don't know about you, but I'm still getting spam. So, uh, <laughs> frankly, uh, sometimes uh, more government is not the solution to the problem. More government is the problem. Well, you know, the dilemma here is this. We have had these diplomatic discussions with the EU since 1994 when the privacy directive was first, I guess, 92 when the privacy directive was first released and began discussions on that. And the difference is this. The Court of Justice of the European Union is now in the middle of it. Before, it was U.S.-EU diplomats arguing about cross-border data flows and what the EU would accept and what the U.S. would agree to. And now you've got the CJEU, the Court of Justice of the European Union, sitting in the middle of this where they were not there before and sitting in the middle with the court ruling. This is the highest court in the European Union. So it's a big deal. And I just think there's going to have to be something done on the U.S. side in the way of legislation to give something that can help satisfy that court decision. I agree. Uh, but I mean, for the reasons I described earlier, I don't know if it'll ever reach the, the place that the CJEU wants. And you're, you're absolutely correct. The CJEU has inserted themselves into places that they don't have any business. I mean, the whole idea of getting involved in intelligence gathering and law enforcement, that was outside of the, of the GDPR. And uh, it's, it's just an area that they should not have gotten themselves in, involved in, but they're in it. And um, I don't see how they get themselves out because they're not going to reverse themselves. No. So I don't know how we get ourselves out of this mess. Well, before I turn this over to Jerry to close, because I know we're running out of time, just let me ask something practical. What can data privacy and data protection professionals do today, right now, to help advance compliance with this new world of SHRMS 2 and EDPB recommendations? I think the first thing they need to do, and probably have already done in many cases, is go back to the data inventories, scrutinize them, look at the transactions that are going on right now, and determine, do you really need that transaction? There are just some things that likely can be localized. I mean, think about HR databases. I know that HR professionals are probably going to choke me on this, but I would rather have an EU HR database just for the EU folks and a database for the US folks and a database for the folks in China, in Japan, Russia, wherever you happen to be. You have a database in a resident in every country, okay? And I know HR folks hate that, but that's something that's very localizable because HR laws are very local by their nature. You can have that completely self-contained, firewalled off. You can still do compliance by getting reports, rolled up reports from, from these, these servers, these, uh, these systems, and you don't see any personal data. You just see aggregate data. So you can still really enforce all of your requirements as a company without having all that data on a server here in the U.S. And I think that kind of localization is what we're going to have to take a look at. I don't see any way around it. Yeah. Well, Scott, I I want to thank you for sharing with us. Your message is uh, 
not the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Uh, it is, uh, it's a very real message and, uh, and a sobering one. But your candor and your insights are really appreciated. Thank you for being with us. Very happy to be on. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us this week on U.S. National Privacy Legislation. Make sure to visit our website, adcg.org, where you can subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Cast, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in what you heard today, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the podcast, that would help us out too. Also, you might want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Data and Cyber Governance Alert, which you can do right on our homepage. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode where we dig deeper into the possibilities of U.S. national privacy legislation.